I'm Corey Astle. And I'm Kyle Savin. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast about conservative ideas and thinkers. We explore what it means to call yourself a conservative, where conservatism has been, and where it's going. Each week, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. Join the conversation by liking us on Facebook or following us on Twitter at ConsMinds, at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 103, we read Liberal Fascism by Jonah Goldberg, published in 2007. Jonah Goldberg was born on the Upper West Side of Manhattan to Lucy Ann Goldberg, a literary agent, and Sidney Goldberg, an editor and media executive. He graduated from Goucher College in 1991, and the following year took a job at the American Enterprise Institute. He joined National Review as a contributing editor in 1998, remaining at that magazine until 2019. That year, he became the founding editor of the online publication The Dispatch, where he remains. Yeah, and he's best known at National Review for starting The Corner, the mm -hmm. uh, uh, National Review Online. That was, in the early days of the internet, was the place to be in uh, a spot that I always followed. It was, it was good stuff. Yeah, it was, it was. a, a proto-Twitter, uh, right? Uh, because mm -hmm. it was not quite a blog. But um, anyway, so Jonah Goldberg says, uh, fascism is a modern word for heretic at this point. Branding an individual worthy of excommunication from the body politic. The left uses other words, racist, sexist, homophobe, Christian fundamentalist, to, for similar purposes. Uh, at this point, the word fascism has no meaning except insofar as it signifies something not desirable, basically on the right. He says the major flaw in all this is that fascism properly understood is not a phenomenon of the right at all. Instead, it is and always has been a phenomenon of the left. His task, as he sees it, is to, he says, dismantle the granite-like assumption in our political culture that American conservatism is an offshoot or cousin of fascism. Rather, he says, I'll try to show many of the ideas and impulses that inform what we call liberalism come to us through an intellectual tradition that led directly to fascism. Uh, philosophically, organizationally, and politically, the progressives we're as close to authentic homegrown fascists as any movement America has ever produced. So obviously very counterintuitive. Mm -hmm. And when you read the title, you're like, oh, this is going to be a polemic. And there is a there is some polemicism in it. But actually, it's a pretty good history showing where fascism actually was. And at this point, what we think of fascism is, you know, only loosely related to how it was understood at the time. Yeah, I mean, he starts off talking with the talking about the the genesis of that fascism, which was in Mussolini's Italy, and of course Mussolini, before like a lot of fascists in the twenties and thirties, started out his life as a socialist. What changed him is he went to war, and he saw sort of like instead of the the class struggle that Marxists had been talking about before the war. Of course, when the war started, all these different socialist parties and and all the different parliaments of Europe all voted to go to war. You know, so even as they were preaching this this idea of like the workers of the world unite. As soon as war came to their countries, they're like, wait a minute, first we're going to unite with our own people, right? We're mm -hmm. not, you know, this blood is thicker than water and all this, all this, all the things that Marx and Engels were against and, and, and the, the Marxists that followed them were saying doesn't matter. It's class that matters. The push came to shove. Everybody fought and Mussolini needed too. He joined up and went to the front and all this. And uh, he came to understand what he called the socialism of the trenches. You know, Mussolini doesn't define all fascism for all time, but he was sort of the first one. And it's Goldberg goes through his whole 
history, his biography here, and sort of how he drifted away from doctrinaire socialism to become fascist. But they're not that different. I mean, he talks about the different platforms, what they were calling for. They were both against big business. They were both, you know, against the aristocracy. They were both about sort of building up, like doing things to help the lower classes. They did it in different ways and talked about it in different ways. But it was it was very clearly at that point a, a like he said, he says it's a word for a heresy. It was a heresy of socialism. And that's, there's nothing socialist state more than other socialists. You know, you see, you see here, even here in America, we've got like five, six different communist parties and they all hate each other. You know, and instead of getting together and getting maybe 1% of the vote, they all fight each other because this one split off over Trotsky and this one split off over the Hungarian revolution in 56. And they all, you know, they all hate each other as much as they hate the capitalists, which is that's just something that seems to happen on the far left. And that kind of happened to Mussolini. He got, you know, he was doing this new kind of socialism, this socialism with, with the nationalist impulse, which is, I think, I guess why the, the Nazis later called themselves national socialists. Um, and that was, it was too close to socialism for the socialists to accept. They, they hated him as much as, as you hate any sort of heretic from your own group. And he's one who splits off from your own group and says, no, I'm, I'm the real one. You know, that, that inspires more hate than the full on class enemy who you just think, well, that can't be helped. They're just too far gone. But when your own people split off, it's, it's, it's like a real, they, uh, what they call the narcissism of small differences. You know, they, uh, they hate each other more than anything. So you get this sort of divide, but looking at it from the outside, like a lot of writers were in America and, and in the West, it looked kind of the same what Stalin was doing in the Soviet Union in the twenties and what Mussolini was doing in Italy in the twenties. Not that different. Yeah. I mean, at this point we're, we're meant to understand fascism to be on one on the far right of the spectrum, communism to be on the far left. But the point that he's making here, and I think it's a good one. He says mistaken belief. It's, it's a mistaken belief that fascism and con- communism are opposites. In reality, they are closely related historical competitors for the same constituents, seeking to dominate and control the same social space. I mean, essentially, this is an intramural fight. This is a se- more of a sectarian fight. It's more like Catholics versus uh, Methodists, like arguing about the, the nature of baptism than it really is the, uh, the, far, the far right and the far left against each other. And I think that was really uh, revealing. And we, we got some of this with Hayek, but uh, I think I think Jonah does a really good job, like laying this out. He says, um, "Before Hitler, it never occurred to anyone that fascism had anything to do with anti-Semitism. In fact, um, Mussolini was supported supported not only by the chief rabbi of Rome, but by a substantial portion of the Italian Jewish community. Uh, almost all of Italy's most famous and admired young intellectuals and artists were fascists or fascist sympathizers. The New York Times painted a glowing picture of Mussolini." You know, he says, fascism was born of a fascist moment in Western civilization when a coalition of intellectuals going by various labels, progressive, communist, socialist, and so forth, believed the era of liberal democracy was drawing to a close. I mean, are there shadows of that or echoes of that today? It was time for man to lay aside the anachronisms of natural law, tradition, religion, constitutional liberty, capitalism, and the like, to rise to the responsibility of remaking the world. You know, does that sound conservative? You know, does that sound far right? to uh, lay aside the anachronisms of natural law and, and religion and tradition, constitutional liberty. No, that's, that's, that is an, an effort and a, a task of the left. 
God was long dead, he said, and it was long overdue for men to take his place. Mussolini, a lifelong socialist himself, socialist intellectual, a warrior in this crusade, um, he says, uh, a doc, uh, fascism was a doctrine he created from the same intellectual material Lenin and Trotsky had built their movements. From the beginning, fascism was dubbed as right-wing. You made this point. It was dubbed right-wing not because it was to the right, but because the communist left thought that this was the best way to punish apostasy. In other words, this is an intramural fight. Like Both of them are on the far left. Both of them are socialist movements. The real difference, as you pointed out, was the communists viewed you know the the proletariat as as the the group that needed to coalesce and come together and stand and rise up versus um in, in the fascists it's just the group's a little bit smaller instead of an international sort of everyone every, you know all the the working people it's basically the working people of your country so it's kind of it's uh a, again a sectarian fight uh, a much more intramural like uh we're were similar and the same basically across the board. Mussolini uh, was attended the Socialist Congress. He was the editor of the socialist newspaper called Avanti. You know, he was one of Europe's leading radical socialists. And the only difference between him really and Lenin uh, is that, you know, he, after, like you said, after the war, he started to view like the group as not the entire world of proletariat uh, workers, but those who were in their own countries, their own people. Yeah. I think that point about the way about, you know, getting rid of the past and all that really is what makes it so incongruous to hear people call fascism right wing because it's right wing at the time Mussolini was organizing was monarchism. Mostly maybe some liberal democratic uh, window dressing on top of it, but if you were right wing in Italy in those days, you wanted the king of Italy. That's who that's who should be in charge. And the aristocracy, you know, the people who had been in charge, the traditions, the church, especially the church. Fascists were against all that, just like communists. And that's yeah, I mean, they fought each other, but they really were so forward looking to I mean, to the extent that they just wanted to destroy the past. And that's that's something that fits in not at all on the right. Even even our libertarians on the right do not look to the past as something to be destroyed. You know, they, they, I mean, they, they look to it as a place to where we first discovered natural rights and, 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 you know, looking to our constitution and things like that, that are written in the past and, and to the Lockean philosophy that comes from the past. So even, even the, the least traditional right winger is way more traditional than anything being put forth in, in Mussolini's programs. Absolutely. But I, did, I, I did notice there was one, <laughs> As he drifted away from that sort of doctrinaire socialism, he sort of replaced it with the emotionalism of of that comes from nationalism, it, you know, that romanticism with a capital R, you know that, and that is one thing that I think that's part of the heresy of fascism is that, you know, when you talk to a communist, they want you to read fifty books. There's no fascist books, you know. There's just there's just the spirit, the youth, the the vigor, you know, the the recreation. And there's one line in here. Uh, Mussolini responding to uh, a reporter from Il Mundo, uh, an Italian newspaper, says, uh, Goldberg writes, shortly before he became prime minister, he famously responded to those who wanted specifics from him. The Democrats of Il Mundo want to know our program. It's to break the bones of the Democrats from Il Mundo, and the sooner the better. <laughs> now that's, uh, communists always have a platform. 
this guy just wants to own the libs, really. I mean, it, 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 so there are some echoes of that on the modern, right? I have to say, but as the actual, he did have a program and to the extent he had one, it was, it looks nothing like what we'd call American conservatism. Yeah. He says what unites them is that he says the urge to quote, get beyond politics. It's a faith in the perfectibility of man and the authority of experts and an obsession with the aesthetics of youth, the cult of action and the need for an all-powerful state to coordinate society at the national or global level. I mean, you see both the right and the left here, but there's a lot of left when you're talking about the authority of experts, faith in the perfectibility of man, you know, cult of action. There's a, I think both sides, maybe at this uh, juncture in history in America, both sides would like someone to come in and just do it the right way, quote unquote, you know, like uh, clean yeah. things up. And, the Dem- and, you know, maybe Trump was that for, for some Republicans or some on the right. Uh, I mean, those on the left, I mean, again, they want the same thing. They just want it in their direction. They, they want the strong man to come in and do the same thing uh, or at least have the powerful state to coordinate society. But he says, most of all, they share the belief. He says what I call the totalitarian temptation that the right amount of tinkering with the right amount of tinkering, we can realize the utopian dream of a better world. And so it's almost like uh, fascism is a more corporate version of, of communism. And again, it's a, it's, it's a difference of degrees. It's a difference of heresy as opposed to like opposite ends of the spectrum. And that's why I think you see in China where at this point, I think most people would say that China, China is not so much communist as it is fascist. You know, it is, it's one giant corporation. It's, it's more, it's a more corporate version where the faith is put in to the the experts and the, the 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 leaders and those who who have the expertise and so forth, and I think this is a uh, I, I think a, a, an obsession of the left that uh, the intellectuals, the you know the smartest, the, the the experts, so to speak, are the ones who should be who should be leading and in charge, and they will they won't lead us astray, sort of thing. And I think you see this um, very much in China, and I think you see it very much on the left in America today. Absolutely. That get beyond, get beyond politics stuff always kind of sets my teeth on edge. And sometimes our people say it too on the right, but I've been hearing it from the left forever because it, the technocratic thing arose in progressivism, as Goldberg describes here. It, um, it started with Woodrow Wilson's war socialism, which was just doing a lot of the socialist stuff, but only because of the war, not forever. And then actually a lot of it did get rolled back in the 20s when Republicans came back into office. But it was a sort of, uh, well, there's a war on, so now we've got to organize. We can't be competing against each other, can't be arguing, we've got to be united, and here's how we're going to do it. Smartest guys, best schools, they're going to tell you everything. And, you know, those smartest guys probably knew some things about trade and business. They also, they, a lot of them were also eugenicists, you know, right. because, because that was the prevailing, you know, experts' opinions at the time was about, you know, culling mankind of bad genes and all of that sort of stuff that we considered pretty horrible today i mean pretty much across the political spectrum that's but that was that was expert opinion and that that is the problem and i always go back to something hayek wrote i think in the road to serfdom about how when when you have that one big economy when you have the one person determining everything or the one group you have to get it right if you just leave people alone and everybody does his own thing well if somebody messes up for himself he's only messing up his own his own case, his own family, his own business. But when, when it's top down, 
it's got to be just right. So if you're if if you've put all the experts in charge and their answer is, well, we've got to do some eugenics here, you know, sterilize people. Like then you, then years later you realize, well, that's a terrible idea, and it, you know it's pretty much a crime against humanity. Well, it's too late. You've done it. You know, it, and that is the problem with with that sort of top down thing. And rule by experts is always necessarily top down. He he spends quite a bit of time, almost an entire chapter, talking about the uh, eugenics, and we we are to understand today that 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 is the the racism of the right, but in fact it was it was led by the 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 left uh, intellectuals, the, the the academy of the day. You know, many on the left talk of destroying a whiteness in a way that is more super, superficially reminiscent of national socialist effort to de-Judaize German society. I mean, it's basically the way that uh, Democrats talk about uh, eliminating whiteness and so forth is is very similar to the way they talked about eugenics such a long time ago. But we should talk about uh, Nazis and Nazism because it's almost like Nazism was t- taking fascism and then adding this uh, this strong element of... of uh, you know, racism, particularly against, uh, against Jews. He says, Nazi ideology cannot be summarized in a program or a platform to your point about books. It can better be understood as a maelstrom of prejudices, passions, hatreds, emotions, resentments, biases, hopes, and attitudes that when combined most often resemble a religious crusade wearing the mask of a political ideology. So not, and, uh, once, uh, the Nazis were in power, that's when they established the quote state capitalism, very similar to China. If they're not capitalist, then actually it's, it's more of mm-hmm. uh, it's more of crony capitalism where they reward their friends. It's more, much more like what's happening in Russia where you have oligarchs and so forth. So the Nazis actually rose to power exploiting anti-capitalist rhetoric. So it's actually, again, like, is this a function of the right does this emerge from the right when it's so anti-capitalist? It doesn't make a lot of sense. So, um, but he says Nazism emphasized the this very similar themes of later of uh, leftists like our leftists of today. He says Nazis emphasized the primacy of race, the rejection of rationalism, an emphasis on the organic and holistic, which includes environmentalism, health, food, exercise. And the most of all, the need to transcend notions of class. I mean, it's really interesting. And so he goes to great lengths and really is, uh, you know, it gets to, he, he beats the dead horse saying like, he's not calling liberals or Democrats. He's not calling them mm-hmm. Nazis. What he's saying though is Nazism is uh, ultimately a uh, creation of the left. And so many of these um so, so many of these attitudes and uh, how they've, uh, you know, viewed their rule, role and what needed to be done is so similar to the new left today. And, you know, if, if we were being honest, we would say the new left is incredibly fascist today, but, um, but we've been conditioned to understand fascism as, as something of the right when it's very much happening on the left. Not that level of racism, certainly not that level of uh, obviously what uh, the, the horror um, imposed by by the Nazis, but we're still talking. We're still obsessed with race. We're still mm-hmm. obsessed with who's on top. We're still obsessed with environmentalism. We're still obsessed with uh, re- replacing religion with 
essentially this new religion of of meaning and and sticking with the the arc of history. He says doctrinaire fascism much like communism sold itself as an unstoppable force of divine or historical inevitability. Today the left would say the arc of history. You you're you're on the right side of history or the wrong side of history and they believe that that's where uh, they're riding that wave. Right. And he talks about how the, the social gospel was the original sort of progressivism that combined Christianity with progressive ideas. And it had that same sort of like, it's coming, it's movement. This is the way things are going. We're moving towards, you know, a, a spiritual inevitability. Now they've just, they've jettisoned the Christianity part of it, but it's the same. It's a, yeah, the same, like the dialectic from Marx. I mean, it's another thing they share in common. They, they both see themselves as just history goes a certain way and it's going to end up with us. But I think most conservatives look at history and say, you know, it has its ups and downs. It's, it, it's not an arc or a line. It's, it's just a bunch of things that happened. Right. I, I, I don't, I don't see maybe, you know, in, the, in thousands of years, we'll look back and see certain things, but I, I, I see trends in history, but it's not, nothing's inevitable. Nothing guarantees that we can't go backward quote unquote you know from wherever we consider forward to be but goldberg does say many times in the book i'm not saying that liberals are nazis and that's that's good it's good to make that point because when people see the title of the book liberal fascism they're going to say do you mean to say bill clinton is a nazi and that's not that's not what he's saying but he does make some points that in america it was always different and i think that's just because we didn't have we didn't have the shadow of aristocracy over us and all the feudalism and and stuff that had been oppressing Europeans on the lower classes for centuries. We had this national tradition of liberty. So even when Wilson was at his most progressive or at his most fascist, he was always cloaked in the idea of liberty. And that made it easier to roll back too when we when Wilson left and, and Harding and Coolidge came in and sort of set things back to normal. He says here in chapter three, fascism at its core is the view that every nook and cranny of society should work together in spiritual union towards the same goals overseen by the state. That, I think that can never really apply to America. And one of our greatnesses is that we are so vast and so varied that we're never going to be united on one goal overseen by the state. Even, I mean, even in World War II, there was some we were united about the war for the most part after we got attacked, but there wasn't this, it's not the same as, as, as what the, the progressives really wanted, whereas we're all just in lockstep behind the leader. And that's, and then you hear that, you hear people be annoyed by that. You know, people complain America is not united. Well, the, what that means is they want people to unite behind the things they like. Right. It's not, it's not the unity itself. It's yeah. United behind all these great ideas, which happen to be my ideas. I mean, it seems like um, Tom Friedman at the New York Times was constantly writing about how we should be more like China. Right. Constantly. Because, oh, they built bullet trains and stuff, you know? Well, great. But, yeah, they built stuff real fast. First of all, who knows if it's going to be still standing. But even beyond that, even if they built it perfectly, what's the cost of that? You know, the cost is the, the way you get unity in a country that's even bigger than ours is you have a million people in concentration camps. Mm hmm. And if you don't want to end up there, guess what? You're united now, you know, and that's, that's the only way. And that's, I mean, what did fascism and communism both do is, is imprison people for dissent. Again, it's 
the unity of these two ideologies. That's your unity. That's that's what progressives are really asking for when they say that we should all be united around progressive goals. It's because we won't be. There's always going to be a dissent. That what's more American than than saying no? <laughs> you know? And it's not. It it doesn't work. And you, without without that heavy handedness that would destroy the liberty that's at the heart of our national culture. Without that, there is no real unity. Yeah. That's a, that's a great point, a great insight. And even just as recent as the pandemic, I mean, I can't count the number of fawning articles talking about how, how China has kept the, kept the pandemic from spreading. Like Uh, how many charts uh, charted them versus us. And do you know how they've done that? (laughs) <laughs> First of all, they're not going to be able to, long term, they're not going to be able to keep a lid on it. But the way they've kept a lid on it is through the most cruel and, mm-hmm. and just uh, authoritarian means, locking people in their houses. I mean, I follow this guy on Twitter who's uh, an American expat in China. In He's in Shanghai, and they've been locked down for like 48 days or something. They can't go out. They can have food brought, but they also, it's also the law that you can't uh, have food brought to you on the weekends and, and these sorts of things. And you, and it's unbelievable. I mean, here in America, part of the reason we, the, the pandemic, you know, burned through the population is because we get to make choices on our own and we don't have a government that's going to literally weld the door shut so that you cannot get out. Yeah. That's pretty effective. You know, that's pretty darn effective and it's pretty unified, (laughs) (laughs) but that's the trade-off. That's why people, when people say Mussolini made the trains run on time, which it turns out it's not really true, but that's what they're saying. There's like, well, you know, his methods weren't, you know, unorthodox, but, uh, Look, he got some results, and I mean, again, it's not exactly true. But even if it had been, that's if that's what it takes to get, you know, transportation that's punctual. That's that's nothing Americans can ever accept. Yeah, that's not the trade-off we're going to make. So let's talk a second about uh, Woodrow Wilson, someone that I haven't studied as much as I, I've looked at other, you know, presidents, and so it's it's always interesting listening to Jonah Goldberg's podcast because he never misses an opportunity to. Uh, to to trash Wilson, and he even has like this dark, foreboding music that comes on anytime he mentions Wilson's name, which is kind of funny. But he says uh, Wil- Woodrow Wilson was the 20th century's first fascist dictator. More dissidents were arrested or jailed in a few years under Wilson than under Mussolini during the entire 1920s. Something we'd never know, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, so anyway, sorry. Wilson arguably did as much, if not more, violence to civil liberties in his last three years in office than Mussolini did in his first 12. Wilson created a better and more effective propaganda ministry than Mussolini ever had. Wilson had unleashed literally hundreds of thousands of badge-carrying goons on the American people and prosecuted a vicious campaign against the press that would have made Mussolini envious. Now, I uh, I can't say that I've studied Wilson, but this has definitely uh, piqued my interest, and so we'll have to dive in a little bit further. But I mean, just uh, recently you had Princeton University, their politics school is named after Woodrow Wilson and they were going to rename it because of, because of his, you know, past with, with racism and so forth, mm-hmm. which, you know, maybe that's the right decision or not, but it's kind of like, sounds like he did much worse stuff than even that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Dan McLaughlin at National Review had a big article about why Wilson was terrible. And I, I think 
Republicans have been on this train for a long time. We never liked them. And then finally, after 100 years, the uh, the progressives who were still in the movement that he basically led to office uh, are finally looking back and saying, Oof, you know, this was, uh, yeah, I mean, some of the suppression of free speech, some of the, you know, the stuff during the war, locking, I mean, it basically what Wilson, I mean, what FDR did with the Japanese was foreshadowed to some extent by what Wilson did. There's the same sort of thing, like, oh, well, these people might be enemies. You know, they are from the country that we're now fighting, or maybe their parents are. We don't totally trust. Now, we couldn't lock up every German in America because there are just too many. Um, but there was a lot, there were a lot of German immigrants who were hassled and, and, and Italian immigrants, and or rather, uh, not uh, Austrian, Hungarian. I forgot Italy was on our side in the first war. But, uh, you know, there was that same. Uh, the things that that's the the worst things about our domestic response to World War Two were all happening and then some in World War One. Even to the extent that when we were doing war propaganda in World War Two, a lot of the what the government was trying to do was not be so over the top like they were in World War One, like depicting the Germans as like ravening beasts and things like that. It's like that's that's why you'll see I think a lot of World War Two propaganda from our side mostly ridicules or or uh, pokes fun at the leaders of those countries, not the people themselves. So we learned a little bit, but yeah, finally they're turning on Wilson on the left too. And he's, but he was rated as one of the most successful presidents in all those polls of historians, you know, year after year. He's yeah. And partially you're like, well, that goes to stands to reason because these, these academics, these historians who are all like far left, we know they are, they just, mm-hmm. they love other intellectuals, right? They're, they're, they're just, uh, infatuated with other intellectuals, like we want, we want, uh, you know, a, a lecturer like Obama or mm. or uh, or Woodrow Wilson at the at the head, because they're the they're the experts and the smart people and the guys who went to the right schools and so forth. Yeah, and it, what's interesting again is I, I've when I've read about Wilson, it's it's usually in relation to uh, Louis Brandeis, who he appointed to the Supreme Court, and who was sort of uh, the founder of this idea of the curse of bigness. He was a progressive who thought everything should be smaller, which is why one of his biographers called him the Jewish Jefferson. Uh, you know, it, and Wilson talked that kind of talk when he was running for office in 1912. Whereas Teddy Roosevelt, the Republican progressive, was saying, well, business is going to be big, so we just need to make the government big enough to balance it. And Wilson's like, no, why don't we just make them both small, break up the trusts? This was the fight, and then Taft was also running with, like, how about we don't do any of that? And Wilson won, but then he immediately did all the big government stuff that he said Roosevelt was doing and that he wouldn't do. So it, it it's that once you're – that's another thing that is so troubling about – and you see this in presidents on a lot of sides. They come in talking about, oh, we're going to abolish this, we're going to – and then when they get in, it's like, well, now I'm running it, so it's good. You know, and that's the same – now right. my experts are the ones who are right. – busting these trusts and oh actually some of them don't need to be busted well you know they're they're okay then with the war and this leads into something interesting also uh, goldberg was talking about with fascism as a militarist idea he's saying progressives and uh communists and fascists were all militaristic in the 30s that was just how people expressed themselves mm-hmm. and i think a lot of it's because a lot of the people leading these movements were veterans of the first world war and even if they weren't veterans of it, they 
everybody had lived through it who was in politics by that point. Everybody had been shaped by this most destructive thing that had been happening had happened in modern history. This this horrible grinding four year war with millions of people dead. So yeah, they come out of it with militaristic attitudes. They, you know, and even the way people talk. Like when we talk about political campaigns, campaign used to be a, a war word. You know, an army went on campaign. We talk about like a barrage of political ads. Well, a barrage was when a bunch of artillery shells fell on you. But people came back from the war and, and made the obvious metaphor. Well, now it's a bunch of ads falling on you, you know. So that Goldberg says, um, he says, it should be remembered that fascism was militaristic because militarism was progressive at the beginning of the 20th century. Yeah. And that kind of makes sense. They're, they're the ones who want to march forward and change things and have all this youthful vigor. And that's like what you see in Portland every weekend. People busting each other up in the streets because they're just, that's what these kind of radical futurist utopian movements do they they're tired of politics they need to find another way and all that stuff and that's so i he suggests fascism's militarism was really like an artifact of the times and when you think about it if you look at fascists that survived the second world war in spain and portugal they didn't really fight any wars i mean they 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 fought some of their own colonies in independence fights but they didn't go fight each other they didn't go on aggressive wars they mo- i mean they not not to say they were good i mean these were not great regimes to live under but the militarist part of it kind of was really i mean it was especially a german thing but it was also just a 1930s thing yeah no that's a great point especially because you know conservatism at, during that era was pretty isolationist as well yeah. so if you think about it you had a democratic president for world to take us into World War One, World War Two, Korea, Vietnam, mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know it's like the the first uh, the first Republican president to take us to war was George H W Bush with with Iraq. But even George W Bush, you know we've we've talked about this before, so we don't have to rehash it. But um, you know I had such discomfort with the entire thing and partially I kept saying to my friends like this is totally Wilsonian you know like this is this is a democratic this is a liberal view of the world like you can you know, we can remake the world if we just uh, do it right and do it our way and the only difference being you know George Bush would say we'll do it using our military might but you make the great point that that was the same argument of the left for for multiple presidents and it's happening now with Ukraine. I mean, it's democratic senators who are saying, who are saying the quiet part out loud that we need to get, uh, American troops on the ground to, to, to Mm. save Ukraine. And you're like, wow, you've really returned to your roots. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, That's a good point. I mean, I, 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 the, yeah, the, the heart of the Republican party in the, in the 20th century was the Midwest and the Midwest was the most isolationist part of, America and that, that's a that's a strain we talked about it in that book a couple a couple seasons back I forget the name of it but the, that's a strain of republicanism that had pretty much died out and then with the end of the cold war it was sort of like well who, we could fight little wars who's gonna beat us right this isn't like fighting the Soviet Union this is you know we're, we're and we're good now it's it's fine so that Wilsonianism kind of crept back in it wasn't really until Donald Trump that we had a president who you could call isolationist in any way yeah uh, and he wasn't a complete isolationist i don't 
I'm not sure any American is anymore, not in national politics. But he didn't start any new wars, so that's something. And so far, Biden hasn't started any new wars. Hopefully, we'll manage to keep our boys from being killed in Eastern Europe. I hope. But yeah, it's it's um it is interesting how much military might and that sort of martial spirit can infuse the left under the right conditions. It's just that the left that we grew up with was the post hippie left who was sort of born amid the Vietnam war and being against that war was such a part of their, of a baby boom generation leftism that, you know, when I was growing up, it seemed like, well, Reagan was increasing the military budget. Although again, he didn't really start any new wars either. The left was was these old hippies, so that, clearly the Democrats must be the peaceful party. But it, as as Goldberg's pointing out here, it's not not exactly so. And like you said, all the major wars of the twentieth century were democratic wars, hundred percent. So he, I think he really lays the point home again about uh, progressives being the the original fascists and social Darwinists. He says uh, we already talked about eugenics, but he also says. They were openly and proudly hostile to individualism. I mean, again, this is when you're talking about the American right. The individual is uh, is is primary, right? Primacy of the individual is one of our strongest core held beliefs, and the Nazis certainly didn't agree with that, but the left very much does. He says the progressive view progressives viewed the traditional system of constitutional checks and balances as an outdated impediment to progress because such horse and buggy institutions were a barrier to their own ambitions. Oh my, in the midst of this uh, Supreme court fight of uh, on abortion and, and such, like, does this just ring so true right now that the traditional system of constitutional checks and balances is just outdated. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a, a tool of white supremacy. You know, it exists for, for the, the, the minority um, uh, in this country, that is to say, Republican minority for the rural people to have far more power than they deserve. He says, dogmatic attachment to constitutions, uh, democratic practices, and antiquated laws was the enemy of progress for fascists and progressives alike. Indeed, fascists and progressives shared the same intellectual heroes and quoted the same philosophers. I mean, this is the debate that's raging right now. You know, should we should we overturn the Supreme Court? This has become outdated. The the electoral college is just an outdated tool of oppression and white supremacy and a, a way for those uh, uh, white working class middle American uh, uh, deplorables to hold sway and power in this country real quick as a sidebar like the, the these exact same people that uh, that i guess maybe have a, a strong ear for populism that is you know white working class or working class of any race the forgotten man so to speak this was the, this was the democrats people and it's yeah. just so ironic and hypocritical that now now that those people are not voting for them, they they flip and call them deplorables and racists and white nationalists and supremacists, and that uh, our American institutions 
are just tools of of this oppression that's keeping the 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 truth and the arc of history from continuing forward you know hurling forward into uh this destiny that we're that we're we're going to reach where you know uh you know ha- having uh men compete in women's sports is no longer an issue you know so it is it's amazing to me that um FDR managed to make a coalition that included the top-down experts who wanted to run everything, but also all the poor and working-class Americans who voted for him. And I guess that's that's a testament to his political skill and also just to how bad the Depression was that people were looking for something new. But, yeah, that's not it anymore. And uh, like you said, yeah, they think the Supreme Court's outdated, the Constitution's outdated, the Electoral College is outdated, the Senate's outdated. Mm-hmm. When they lose the House, that'll be outdated too, right. I guess, <laughs> next year. You know, it's all outdated if I don't get what I want. The Constitution itself, federalism, states having any authority whatsoever, totally outdated, just a tool of of oppression. Yeah, it's it's so very clearly not about the process. It's just about I want to win, and that's that's sad. And it's and I don't think I don't I think Americans see through it. I, I do. I, I think court packings never worked. Even even FDR couldn't pull it off. And he had bigger majorities for his own election, bigger majorities in the House and Senate, and even he couldn't pull that stuff off. So I, I think even Americans, uh, many of them on the left, look at this hardcore progressive stuff, the same stuff that Wilson was talking about, and say, that's that's a bridge too far for me. Yeah. But I guess, I, I guess we're getting close to time here. So I have to say... Uh, just overall, and there's a lot. There's this is a this is a long book. You you could really get into the history of it if you want to read it. It and and Goldberg does cover a lot of history and recovers a lot of things that were lost. I think in the mainstream telling of history about how fascism ended up as a as a quote unquote right wing thing to begin with. I I think he he leans a little too heavily on the idea that it couldn't possibly be right wing because it's statist. Because I I think outside of America. There is statism on the right and statism on the left. And where fascism was growing up in Europe, that is true to this day. When you see right-wing candidates in Europe, they're not talking about small government. And neither is the left-wing candidates in Europe. There's, there's some countries have little liberal parties like the the Free Democrats in Germany that get 5% of the vote. They're the, they're the ones that want to shrink government. Yeah. But, so I, th- I think in that way, I think Goldberg is sort of begging the question. He's sort of saying, well, you know... I'm, Conservatism means small government. Fascism, you know, conservatism is the right, so fascism can't be the right. I think, well, yes and no. I th- I think in America that has been more so than in other countries, but it, it's also not absolutely true. And I mean, I'm not. It just it just shows. I think sometimes these left right labels get so scrambled. I mean, they were invented in the French Revolution. Politics has changed a lot since then. It's it's kind of hard to know which is which throughout history and whether there's a common thread or not i think he's clearly right that fascism is closer to communism and socialism than to american liberal democracy especially the fusionist right that was uh, the main conservative ideas in america when he was writing it and even today don't resemble fascism near so much as progressivism did yeah great points and I, i think he does make a great case that fascism is much closer to communism and socialism and what's traditionally viewed as progressivism than it is close to American conservatism. You know, I think 
I think he makes a great case of that. And I would say the only, the only regret I have for him here is that because he's viewed as a polemicist and even the title itself is, is really poking in the eye. I think that it's, it's easy for the other side to just dismiss as, as fake, like Fox news history or something like that, where I think he has some really good stuff here. And, and uh, I'm going to use this in my in my own conversations with people in discourse because I think I think he makes a strong case. All right, that's Jonah Goldberg. Catch us next time.